Wowie friends, do we have a doozy for you today. I'm Aaron. I'm Tom. And this is Baby's First Watch List. And this was Baby's First Movie. Tom, my next sentence. (laughs) (laughs) It says, on this episode, we are discussing the first movie our baby has ever watched. Yes, and his second podcast episode. He's right here. He's, I don't know if he's going to last sleep in this whole time, to be honest with no, you. No, no. He's already been fidgeting. But we said that last time and he was fine. So we'll see. That's true. Today we're talking about 1990s Misery. Which if you haven't seen it, if you didn't you know, watch it when I posted about it on Instagram this week, you got to watch it. It's such a fun movie. It's a joy. I love this movie. I love this movie. It's I think the first movie we've done where neither one of us was born when it came out. Yes. And... I wish I was born because, although I probably wouldn't have watched it. Because Annie Wilkes gives me life. It's so good because it's just that good. I like. I saw it when I was in high school, I believe. I did not realize just how much I loved this movie. This is one where I do remember the first time I watched it. Yeah, you saw it more recently than I did. I did. I saw it at uh, my friend Mike's apartment um, at Rutgers. After a night of hanging out uh, during the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. So that was what, 2012? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that was, I don't know why that's a very distinct memory that I have, but I liked it then and I loved it now. Yeah, it's so great. I had it as watched and liked on my Letterboxd, but a lot of the movies I used, I I watched like back in high school or middle school or whatever, I didn't put an actual star rating to. Same. If I didn't really remember, I didn't feel like I could give it an accurate uh, rating. Well, now guess what? Five stars. Five stars, baby. Five stars. So this psychological thriller, is that what you would call it? That's what they call it online. I don't really is there much I don't think there's much psychological about I, it. I think it's a, just a thriller. Is it even just a, like is it a drama slash no, thriller? No, no, it's a thriller. There's a there's fight scenes, there's yeah, that's there's true. tension, there's, you know, hobbling. Yes. Yes. Maiming. <laughs> okay. So this thriller starring Kathy Bates and the late great James Kahn. That's why we chose he this. He was the movie. inspiration for this yeah. episode. Uh is a Stephen King adaptation. From his 1987 novel of the same name. So it was only out for a couple years before it was adapted into this movie. Yes. It was a critical and commercial success, grossing $61.3 million on a mere $20 million budget. It was written by William Goldman, who I got confused with like William Freakin and also William Golding. Okay, so definitely not William Golding. He wrote Lord of the Flies. Yes. And William Freakin did wrote The Exorcist. The Exorcist or William directed The directed. Exorcist. William Goldman. Oh, I have what he did too. Okay, good. Yeah. So he won two Oscars for screenplay writing for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is an excellent movie. Yes. And All the President's Men, which I have not seen. He also wrote the novel and the screenplay for The Princess Bride. Yes. That's what I remember his yes, name me, from me is too. from The Princess Bride. Yes. But he did Misery as well. And he did a bunch of other stuff too. Well, he, he, I think I have this later in the trivia section, but Rob Reiner like specifically was like, I need him to be It seems that they worked this. together yes. a lot. Yes. Yeah. So Misery was directed by Rob Reiner. Meathead, if you are a uh, fan of All yeah. in the Family. Bunkerheads. Bunkerheads. Carol O'Connor fans. Oh, we should have named our kid Carol. 
Or O'Connor. Or O'Connor. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's kind of closer than you'd, yeah. Um, so he's known for, of course, playing Meathead. He won a couple of uh, Emmys for that, actually. Did he? he did, I think two. But he's also known for, in my opinion, directing Heater after Heater in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, he's a legend. It's wild. It's it's kind of like from the, like a 10 year span from like the early 80s to the early 90s. I love every single thing that I've seen that he directed. Yeah, and the rest of him, the rest of them I want to see. Yeah. So his first movie was This Is Spinal Tap, which really skyrocketed my love for mockumentaries. There's so much stuff. I'm going to venture to say that The Office doesn't get made without This Is Spinal Tap. There are I agree with you on that. There it's, a, are, it's a distant it's a distant uh ancestor, but But it is a mockumentary yeah. style yeah. uh show and there are so many movies that get direct inspiration from this is spinal tap absolutely i mean um, what we do in the shadows favorites. is a major tv show now coming from a movie that was a mockumentary that is very much like this is spinal tap i'm sure there were mockumentaries before this is spinal tap but sure. that that is like the the big cult one that everybody knows of the course, earliest one of course you get pop star never stop never stopping of course our favorite movie as a family our, our weekly mention of pop star yes uh and and i think there's so many christopher guest movies Best in show. Yeah. So I love mockumentary style stuff. And so I love this is Spinal Tap. He also did Stand By Me. Which, Another great Stephen King adaptation. Which I don't know if it's that one or Misery. That's my favorite. Stephen King said that the only reason that he let a Hollywood studio buy Misery was because Rob Reiner had already done so well with Stand By Me. And he said, I need Rob Reiner to be the director. A hundred percent. Stand By Me. They're sort of sister pieces in that way then. It kind of is. It's really interesting. And Stand By Me is based on a short story called The Body that Stephen King wrote. I find that at least a couple of his adaptations that are the most successful are based on short stories. You have that one and then you have uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which was turned into Shawshank Redemption, which back when we were in college, I felt people... It had a big renaissance. Like that's the best movie ever made, right? Did you feel that that like people were always talking about how great Shawshank Redemption was? I think people still do talk about it, but there so was too. a time there where it sort of revived. Yeah, and Stand by Me though is prob. I I'm gonna say that one still might beat Misery is my favorite Stephen King adaptation. Okay, 1986 River Phoenix, who is my forever crush. I love River Phoenix. R.I.P. R.I.P. to him. I. Uh, and then Rob Reiner also did The Princess Bride. Yes, which is one of my favorites of all time. Amazing. That's, that's a top five for That was me, the easy. next year he did that. Yeah. He then did When Harry Met Sally, yep. which I have talked about being one of my favorite movies, let alone romantic comedies. It's probably number one. That was the Spider-Verse episode with the New York movies, right? That's right. Then he did Misery. And then after that, he did uh, A Few Good Men, which I have not seen. I haven't seen, but obviously it's a classic. I'm sure it's great. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's Rob Reiner over the course of 10 years. Yeah. That's, that's wild. That is an out of control heater for 10 years. Like, I can't, I can't even think. And just the, the breadth of genres that yeah, he Yeah, it's all over the place. I It's wild. You know, I think that that proves to me that he's in my my like pantheon right is that the right word yeah of directors that i really like he directed annie wilkes and princess buttercup yeah within a year of each other yeah that's (laughs) awesome no three years of each other three years of each other but yes 
So Misery was nominated for one Oscar and it won one Oscar with Kathy Bates taking home the trophy for what? Is it best actress or supporting? Actress. It is. It's actress. As it should be. I had to look that up to make sure, but it, it is. They gave her the right one. As it should be. I think that if this movie had come out now, they might have pushed for supporting instead of actress. Maybe. Because that's a kind of role that she, I, Well, no. She never would have gotten this nomination today. Well, I'm talking about this later uh, with the way that awards don't really honor genre films like this. I have that literally written right yeah. here. Um, but yes, I, I think that if they were going to try to do it, they were going to try to do it. They would have tried to do it in supporting. Um and Kathy Bates. And it would have been Frances McDormand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's part of what I'm going to ask later on on who would be a good uh, mm-hmm. Annie. Although Frances McDormand's too old. I feel like we always I think guess. we think of Kathy Bates I as guess. old. She yeah. wasn't back then. Yeah. Um, And Kathy Bates, she has three other nominations for Oscars, all in the supporting actress category. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that any yep. of them. Yep, about Schmidt was the big oh, one. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. Hot, yes. <laughs> just like in the hot tub. Yes, yes, I yes. didn't watch that movie. No, I just it's on know our list. that. Yeah. Um. So it's extra impressive that Bates won this award because she was largely unknown at the time, and it's also, as Tom alluded to, extremely rare for horror movies to get awards recognition or and thrillers. I would, I would kind of put this in the horror kind of subgenre. Did you look at the? Uh, so I found an article that said the. Uh, you know every horror or thriller winner ever for an oscar i mean i feel like it's it's not a whole lot it's like five of them the exorcist uh no oh wow oh for one uh, uh, actors sorry actors oh actors yeah oh gosh that's actually you know one of them is very very famous one of them is very famous very, very what famous. year 1991 Oh, well, then you've got your Silence of the Lambs. Yes. So that's going to be Hopkins and Jodie Foster. It won the big five, right? Yes. So that's picture, screenplay. In this case, Director. I guess it's adapted screenplay. Yeah. Director, actor, and actress, of yes. which there are only three movies of all time that have won that kind of uh, big thing. Yeah. And that's going to be 1991's Silence of the Lambs is the latest movie yes. uh, to have won those five. Before that was 1975 with One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which was not horror. Um, although I guess you could categorize it maybe thrillery. I have a I have something about that too. Actually, okay. that movie a reference um, for later. And then before then was the 1930s, which was It Happened One Night, which was a really great romantic comedy. Um, so yes, that makes sense. Silence of the Lambs. Okay. Yes. So other than that, the only other actors to win Oscars for horror or thriller films, and this is what they're sort of. I don't really agree with one of them as okay. a horror or thriller, but okay, we're fine with it. Um, Frederick March in 1931 for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He won Best Actor. That's fair. Uh, for Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, Ruth Gordon won for Rosemary's Baby. She was the neighbor. Yeah. Uh, she won Best Supporting Actress. She was great in she that. She was awesome. That movie, listen, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But it's so good. It's and so good. The one that I don't know if I agree with, but I'll, I'll give it just because whatever. Um, Natalie Portman for Black Swan. Uh, that Do you know what's horror about that? The relationship with the director. <laughs> First of all, that. Second of all, how much I didn't like it the second time I yeah, watched it. Yikes. Yeah. It wasn't that good. Sorry. No. Sorry, Swanheads. Yeah. Any anything else? That those are the only actors that that I saw on the website that I looked at. So I'm that's really interesting. I would have I would have guessed other ones. I would have guessed Psycho. Um, I would have guessed the extra. I mean, it's possible that writing or directing one for sure, some sure, other sure. movies, but just acting in specific. Six Sense, you know, stuff like that. But uh yeah, and I know that recently 
There's April jingling, jangling. Her brand new collar, which is way louder than the other one. Yes, of course. There has been a few different movies that have women at the forefront that have been snubbed for Oscar nominations, uh, notably Tony Collette in Hereditary, which I refused to watch, and I, I watched, watched Lilo it. and Stitch instead. Yeah, she was great. And uh, Lupita Nyong'o in Us. Yes, I was just talking about that the other day because um, Nope just came out, Jordan yep. Peele's new movie. And I was saying how, you know, I'm still waiting on that that nomination for Lupita from like two years, three Maybe years ago. Maybe we'll get it for Kiki Palmer Maybe. this year. Um, so this is a movie that Stephen King considers one of his top 10 adaptations. Now, how much of a prolific writer to uh, movie pipeline Steve, do you have to be to have yeah. a top 10? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But, um, and most, have some that would be like, oh, this is definitely not top 10. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> definitely some. Yes. And most critics agree, uh, if not all, that Misery is one of his best adaptations. So uh, one little thing before I get us started with our summary here is that there have been a few other adaptations of the novel Misery, um, but the one that I thought was the most interesting was a play that yes. was also written. Oh, you already looked it up? Yeah, go for it. Oh, darn it, because I was going to ask who played. No, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten it. Okay, so it was a play that was also written by William Goldman. And it actually premiered at Bucks County Playhouse, which That's is funny. a hop, skip and a jump away from us. It then transferred to Broadway in 2015. So not that long ago. It was a limited engagement. And it. I said, I want you to guess who played Paul and Annie. But you I already, already know. Yeah. It was Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, who, which is awesome. Uh, who received a Tony nomination for her role. I've got, I've got one better for you. Not better, maybe. But uh, there was another adaptation that was supposed to be happened prior to that okay before that broadway adaptation there was another one that came out before do you know i don't know who was supposed to play paul but do you know who was supposed to play annie who you won't guess ever who was julia it? roberts that's this what i like about this movie is that i feel like the character of annie could have gone in so many different directions yeah. depending on casting and that is certainly a way that it could have gone yeah i think laurie metcalf would have been down the same road as kathy bates absolutely uh obviously i didn't see it but i i hope that it comes to a streaming service at some point as we talked about heck in the yeah Girls i episode. hope they taped it um <laughs> julia roberts that's really cool yeah so the last thing before I go into the summary, the very, very last thing is I want to give a little shout out to uh, our friend Kate. We had a few people that have uh, asked us what we're going to call our listeners. Oh, we should have started with this. I know, but I wanted to put it in somewhere. Um, so go ahead, Tom. You could tell me uh, what what Kate was, uh, her suggestion was. Uh, we're just going to start calling you guys the Babysitter's Club. It's so cute. That's it. I do love the babysitter's club uh so tm to them i guess yeah 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 copy, we're, we're no not making copyright. money off this anyway no so. um the recent adaptation on netflix that was canceled after two seasons was great and i also when i was younger i went to a uh like a fair and i never read any of the babysitter's club's books but i went with my uncle tommy and his girlfriend at the time not elena Oh my God, we'll pretend like that girlfriend that, didn't exist. That never happened. Yeah, because we love Elena so much. But they, I won a prize and I picked a Babysitter's Club cassette tape and it was a an audio book version of one of the books, which is just showing you how nerdy I was. And it was foreshadowing to right now. Yeah. So, so there you go. Give me a summary of Misery. <laughs> congratulations, Babysitter's Club. <laughs> All right. Give me a summary. All right. Paul Sheldon played by James Caan, is a famous writer, and he has a popular series of romance novels featuring a heroine named Misery Chastain. 
Wanting to move on and start the next phase of his career, Paul is out at his writing hermit haven in the remote Silver Creek, Colorado. He finishes a manuscript for his upcoming novel. He caps the moment off as he always does with a lucky strike cigarette and a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne. On his way back to his home in New York, Paul drives through a blizzard and his car flips over. He's rescued by a nurse named Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, who pries open his car door and brings him to her home. Days later, Paul wakes up with two broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. Annie tells him that she's his number one fan, and she backs it up by going into minute detail about his Misery novels. Even her giant pig is named Misery. She lets him know she'll look after him until the phone lines come back online and the roads reopen. So, you know, he's just hanging out. After Paul lets her read his new manuscript, Annie turns angry because of the profanity, but she uh, sort of apologizes after going on a bit of a rant. Then, after she finds out about Misery's death, she goes ham. She flies into a rage and tells Paul that no one has any clue where he is because she never called anybody. Shortly thereafter, Annie makes Paul burn the only copy of his new manuscript, and she brings in a typewriter, forcing Paul to write a brand new novel called Misery's Return, where Misery comes back to life. Paul starts to use his time in the room to plot his way out. When Annie goes to buy him the typewriter paper he requested, Paul fashions a lockpick out of a hairpin and leaves the room, wheeling himself around the house. He accidentally knocks a penguin figurine off of a table, but catches it and replaces it. Paul begins stashing the painkillers Annie was giving to him in a small hole in his mattress, and during dinner, he tries to spike her wine with the crushed painkillers, but she accidentally knocks over her glass. That scene was wild. Yeah, that was ridiculous. I love that scene. That, like, I don't know how that caught me off guard, but yeah, it was so good. Yeah, I know. Like, I, it's great. And I also have seen, we've seen this yeah, movie before. Yeah. So in the ensuing days, Paul finds a scrapbook chock full of weird newspaper clippings about Annie. Finding out that she most likely killed many people, including her own father and her college roommate, and that her ex-husband divorced her, citing mental cruelty. She was also tried for the deaths of a number of infants at the hospital she worked at, though she got off because of a lack of evidence. He also finds that she quoted lines from his misery novels at trial. He turns to the last page to find a newspaper clipping of his own disappearance. (sighs) When Annie realizes that Paul had been leaving his room because the penguin figurine he replaced was facing the wrong direction, she grabs a sledgehammer and... She breaks both of his ankles. That's the big scene we all know and love. Hobbling. Throughout all of this, the local sheriff, Buster, played by Richard Farnsworth, and his iconic deputy wife, Virginia, played by Frances Sternhagen. Who you may know as Bunny in Sex and the City, Charlotte's uh, mother-in-law. Yes. Uh, uh, Buster's been investigating Paul's disappearance, and he puts two and two together by heading to local businesses, realizing that Annie had been buying things like specific paper, and all of one bookstore's available misery novels, so he heads over to her place. Having drugged Paul and put him into a hidden compartment in her basement, Annie welcomes Buster into the home, but when Buster hears Paul screaming in the basement, he opens the compartment, and Annie blows a hole through his back with a shotgun. R.I.P. Buster. That was so sad. Yeah. As Annie tells Paul that she plans to commit a murder-suicide, he convinces her to let him finish the new manuscript and give misery back to the world. When Paul finishes the manuscript, he asks Annie for a Lucky Strike cigarette and some Dom Perignon, which she pronounces Dom Perignon. Love. Just as he did at the beginning of the movie. When Annie returns, he lights the manuscript on fire and he hits Annie over the head with the typewriter. We then get a knockdown drag out brawl between Annie and Paul where Annie shoots him. The two end up outside the room. Paul grabs a metal doorstop in the shape of Annie's pig misery and bashes her over the head, killing her. We get an epilogue about 18 months later where Paul meets his agent, Marsha, played by Lauren Bacall, at an upscale restaurant in New York. Marsha tells him about the positive early buzz for his first post-misery novel and suggests that he write a nonfiction book about his experience with Annie. At that point, Paul sees Annie pushing a cart toward his table and declines Marsha's suggestion. 
As Annie approaches, Paul recognizes that he's hallucinating, and the actual waitress tells Paul that she's his number one fan. Paul responds by saying, that's very sweet of you, and the movie fades to the credits. Yeah, excellent. That movie is so rockin'. Yeah, I don't think I missed anything in that, really. I really don't think you did. I was going to say, you missed the a special appearance by Lauren Bacall. Nope, nope I slid that in didn't. at the end. You slid that in. Um, yeah, I think it's spot on. Excellent job. This movie, uh, I have a lot of different discussion points so do and I. questions I don't, for. I don't have too many questions, but I have a lot of discussion. Who Do you, do you, do you want to start? Do you want me to no, start? No, go for it. You- so, I mean... One of the things that I want to talk to you about is we're going to start off kind of easing in here. This takes place in probably what the 80s because it was written in 87. It came out the movie or the the book. Yeah. And it takes place in this kind of remote uh, winter village with like no people around. There's no uh, kind of very tiny mountain village. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that this movie would work if it was taking place maybe today um, or in a different setting? Today, these towns still exist. It would be a lot harder with the cell phone towers and things like that. Yeah. They would eventually, they would find found him quicker probably. Yeah. Um, but I don't see any reason why, you know, he would have been able to write quicker. She would have given him a computer, a laptop, you know, like the, oh, I think with true. the technology, I think it would, it might've, the story might've taken place in a faster time, but I think that the, the events probably could have gone the same way. And in terms of a setting, I think it could have happened in a city too, because it's like hiding in plain sight. Yeah. I thought about, a movie uh rear window yes and how i i've saw we we watched rear window a really long time ago but it kind of has the same sort of vibe of secretive and people living these secret lives and things being hidden and i i like the idea of something taking place like hiding in plain sight with people all over oh yeah um in misery there was just kind of that one scene where where Paul noticed a helicopter passing overhead. Yeah. Um, and was like, well, I guess I'm not getting found, whatever. In a different setting, like if it took place in Brooklyn or something, you would have a lot more of those moments. Yeah. Which, I don't know, would that cheapen it a little? Not necessarily. Stephen King would have had to have found a way around it, um, basically making sure that Paul couldn't make noise. Or things like that. Yeah. Because so obviously somebody would hear him from outside a window. But the fact that this was a remote location um, is it's a good it's the it's the right setting. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily the only setting. It also adds that little bit of uh, what is it like Hugo, the uh, coziness, which is kind of in direct contrast to the actual plot. I guess. Yeah. Because her her house is kind of cottage core. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, your grandma's house, despite the fact that Annie seems to be like, I don't know, in her maybe 40s, 30s, something like that. The wallpaper. The wallpaper. And then you've got the fires and the list and the, like, like, it's like cozy almost, like this little small town. And even though it's winter, everyone's all bundled up and whatever. And I love that in comparison to the horrors that are, that's going on. Yeah. Um, so, okay, that's interesting. My next question. Wait, can I just say this whole movie could have been avoided? I said this at the beginning when we were watching it. 
all he all he had to do was like wait for the blizzard to be he over. did say he didn't know a blizzard was coming at one point all he had to do was check the weather and this movie never happens yeah but maybe he didn't have like a tv yeah maybe because remember it's not like he could just te- check the app on his phone maybe he could on his fake phone that it didn't exist in 1987. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we had in 2015, Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf play Paul and Annie. What about today? If this was being remade, do you have any actors or actresses in mind? <laughs> I have a couple. I have one. Okay. Oscar Isaac. That was my first one. And then I deleted it. So I was like, I can't talk Every about time. Oscar Isaac Every again. Every time Oscar Isaac. I literally wrote Oscar Isaac. And then I was like, God, I can't say him again. Yes. Yeah. Um, other than him, it's got to be somebody who has oh, some hi, like gravitas a little bit. Um, oh. Even if it's not somebody who is like super old, like an Anthony Hopkins or somebody like that. Yeah. It could always be. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody who is like old, but not super old. Like I think Robert Downey Jr. would be great. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, he would be a little more snarky, but like, yeah. But James Conn was kind of snarky in this movie too. He was so funny. He was very funny in this movie. All right, you want to know my three? I picked three very different vibes. Okay. So my first one that I think I think this is the best choice is Ethan Hawke. I was gonna say him too, but again, we just talked about Ethan Hawke in the other episode. I can't <laughs> help it. Uh, Ethan Hawke, I think, is a really good, especially because he is a novelist or a yeah. writer, um, and he kind of gives off that weird vibe. Yeah, he is a weirdo. My next he's one. A, he's a writer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My next one. And he also, he doesn't fly off at the handle too much in his movies. Yeah. And I like that. There's a little bit more of a down to earthness to when him. When he does, it's a, like it's a point of the movie. Exactly. Like in First Reformed when he goes nuts. Exactly. Uh, my next one was uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Okay. Yeah. I just think he kind of gives off that professorial yeah. kind of uh, intellectual vibe. Is he weird enough though? It would start. Is James Conn weird? No, yeah, that's true. He's kind of. Um, so I think he would be a really good choice. And then my third one, if you're going a little bit uh, younger, I know you don't love him, but I think Adam Driver would be. I don't love him either, but I think he would be good in that role. Okay. Oh, uh, I've got one that's way out there. Okay. Way, way in orbit. All right. Adam Sandler. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Adam Sandler would be an interesting choice because it's unexpected. Um, I know that we would expect it a little bit more. I would say maybe pre-uncut gems, Adam Sandler. Yeah, I love that. That's great. How about Annie? I picked two that both have a similar vibe. Frances McDormand is the one we mentioned earlier, but she, like you said, she might be a little bit old at this point. I did point. not go down that road. Um, well, no, that's, that's one of my, yeah. one of the ones I would have thought of. Um, what are yours? I said Greta Gerwig. Okay. Because she kind of gives off the weird stalker fan. Yeah. That that would be like into something mm-hmm. really like a lot. And then I went Aubrey Plaza. Yes, that's the one. Right? That she's the one. Yeah. Yes. I thought Aubrey Plaza would be great. Yeah. And she could play it a little more subtle, which would be out of character for her, which she normally yeah. does. Yeah. And I think that would be interesting. Or she could not play it subtly and right. do what she Dude. did in Legion, which was wild. There you go. Um, I think I don't think it would matter either way. I think that um, I think another guy who could play Paul is Mark Ruffalo. I thought of him, too. Yeah. Yeah. He would be he what I like about Mark Ruffalo or Michael Keaton, for that matter. Oh, well, I always I'm always team Michael Keaton. Yeah. 
what I like about Mark Ruffalo's style of acting, and it's the same with sort of like an Oscar Isaac, is that there's a softness that I think was lacking back way back when. And that is part of the reason why a lot of men turned down the role of Paul. Yeah, I think that's a great segue because I know we both. Did you have that in your stuff? I didn't because I knew there was a huge list and I knew you would cover it. Okay. This is like everyone that this is everyone that turned down the role of Paul, according to William Goldman in his book. Um, Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro. No, Warren Beatty apparently didn't turn it down. He just kept kicking the can. He kept down kicking the, the can, and then they were like, "Okay, we need to do this movie, so we're going to give it to James Con." Anyway, Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfus, Harrison Ford, Morgan Freeman, Mel Gibson, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, William Hurt twice. Kevin Klein, Al Pacino, Robert Redford, Denzel Washington, Jeff Daniels, Ed Harris, Ed O'Neill, Tim Allen, Robin Williams, and Bruce Willis. So basically, it's ever oh Bruce Willis. I bet it was mad that he and then he ended up playing later, it later on. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's every like known actor at the yes. time. Goldman said that the studio approached every, pretty much every man in Hollywood, uh, and everyone said no. And this was in Goldman's words. Because leading men hate to be passive. They hate to be eunuchized by their female co-stars. And then he said the only person who didn't say no was Warren Beatty, who eventually just, they eventually were like, we got to give this to somebody. We got to start filming this movie. This, I think, is very different from nowadays. Yeah. I, I think, think we've progressed past this. In, absolutely. Maybe in part because of this. Yeah. I I feel like when people say things like, oh, there's been no progress in A, B, or C, whatever. Something like this shows that in film there has been. Because I absolutely could see almost any actor accepting this role. Yeah. I, I don't see a negative in Paul being what they consider passive. I didn't consider him to be passive. He's just a laid back guy. He just wasn't flying off the handle, which cool. is interesting that James Conn of all people ended up playing him because he's famous for flying off the handle as the hothead in the Godfather. That is very true. Uh, and it shows that James Conn really was, I think a better actor, like an underrated actor. Yeah. I mean, he's only got really three like major like hits yeah. that, that have endured to today. Hey, don't discount um, dad movie Brian's song. That's true. Uh, but I mean, nominated for it, I think. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, those are, there's three movies that people talk about that he's in like in 2022. Right. He's, he was in a million movies that I'm sure many people love and there's a lot of big ones, but like, you know, it's this one, it's the Godfather and it's elf. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that have sort of lasted to 2022. Sure. And even if you look at those, they're all pretty different. <laughs> they are. Um, but I I think that the role of Paul is actually a lot deeper than maybe those actors and other, uh, you know, whatever people at that time thought. Yeah. Especially because he was trying to survive this. Yeah. Like, obviously, he's not going to yell and scream. This is a survival movie. This like alpha dude. Like, yeah. duh. This is the most dangerous game. Ugh, yeah. This is, this is not, you know, you know, this is not Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Exactly. So thank you, James Conn, for taking this movie. Yes, we are con heads. We are absolutely. <laughs> so, all right. If we, <laughs> so if we're talking about Annie now. Yeah. Annie is. I'm all about it. Annie's a, well, it's not really an Annie question, but. I've got some Annie, Annie talk. All right. You talk. No, 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 no. Start it up. All right. So Annie is obsessed with this writer. Yes. Paul Sheldon. I cannot in 2022 really 
think of anyone that would be like an obsessive James Patterson fan or like whatever. Yeah. So my question is, what would be the 2022 version of this? Who would be the Paul Sheldon in this case? And I have a second part after that. BTS. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. It's got to be a K-pop band. Yes, it's got to be BTS. Um, yeah. You can't tell me that like it's RM or wouldn't <laughs> get kidnapped and like. <laughs> yeah, it's got to. You got to write this new song. <laughs> yeah, it has to be a BTS <laughs> or like. But, some but it would sort be of... like an American person that kidnaps BTS. Like it would be like a weird American yeah. stand, not a Korean stand. Yeah, um, I could see. Yeah, that someone in music, I think, would be yeah. probably the biggest. Uh, biggest one more than an author um, definitely not an author definitely not an author of course Stephen King put himself in in the role there well, there's so, a whole lot to unpack there too um, and then the other thing is at any point would you have been an Annie instead of a Stan right I guess um, for someone who would be your Paul Sheldon at any point in your life I really don't know if I've ever had one mine was Barney Barney <laughs> I apparently uh, was like obsessed with Barney back when I was like a little kid. Maybe Imagine I did. Like I was like hobbled Barney. <laughs> <laughs> we need a new I love you. You love me song. <laughs> Where's what's her name? Baby Bob. Baby Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that is too much yeah i was like i was a huge barney uh, stan i can't even follow that up i've got nothing <laughs> all right so give me some any questions um well you said she was hot at one point in the movie yeah i listen i think that when you didn't people, say it in those words but i didn't say annie wilkes is wow hot. annie wilkes is hot i just said i was like well kathy bates looks really pretty yeah. like i think that a lot of times because she in her own words in the movie is not a Hollywood star, a movie star looks or whatever. Right. Uh, I think a lot of people over the years have been kind of rude about Kathy Bates. And you know what? Obviously, the outfits weren't doing her any favors, but she was so pretty. Kathy Bates rules. Yeah, I love Kathy that's, Bates. That's like, it. can we just like talk for a second about how she gets kind of like crapped on? And it's not fair. Well, it's also sort of the point of the movie. Of course. The way that she was framed. So I have of a lot. Course. I have a lot about this. Um. I thought this movie was really interesting because, sorry, this is going to be like boring movie talk. This isn't going to be Barney talk, but... Um, uh, well, what is? This was a really interesting movie to me because like the directing, cinematography, acting and, and all that and the music, they had to convey entire plot points without any words. Yeah, it was very show, not tell. Just by nature of, of you know, Paul's isolation. So whenever Paul is sort of surveying the room and looking around at either the door or the hair clip on the ground for a lockpick... Uh, he's doing so almost entirely non-verbally. And so the viewer takes the cues from the other areas of the film, like his furrowed brows and pained expressions, close-ups of his hand barely reaching the hair clip, etc. And it's replacing what was a third-person omniscient narrator in the book. So you got a lot of, of his sort of internal monologue. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, but with Annie, what they did was, uh, it was a lot of close-ups on her face, yeah. as if she was talking directly to the viewer, Yeah, which is what makes her so like intimidating and hulking and chilling because it was a lot of it was filmed from below as I was if just about to say as that. if you're laying like almost in the bed and looking at her like right up in your face yeah uh it was just such a great job of framing her and making her a a, a force a force of nature totally 
um, which I thought was really was really awesome and it was really effective effectively done. That shows you like how like people don't. I always say people don't think. Of course, people think this, but a lot of times we just think of oh the actors and actresses make a movie or make yeah. it bad and it's something like that with cinematography you don't really necessarily have that come to the forefront of your mind when you're watching yeah but that makes it just all that more effective when you do recognize it you're like oh my god that's awesome exactly you know um i mean and the music too the moonlight sonata playing I mean, that was awesome during the hobbling scene is just it's chilling it's perfect i like can't even deal that scene Ooh. And when she's just st- right before she does it, when she's just unraveling his whole plan, when she was like, oh, I know how you unlocked the door. I know what you did with the penguin. I, you know, here's the knife you were you were keeping, you know. And then doesn't she go like, God, I love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she is awesome. And I just love that there is a full on bloody knockdown drag out brawl between James Conn and Kathy Bates that is on film somewhere. It's the great it's a great climax to a very simple film that knows what it is. That's I love exactly that. why I love this movie so much because it knows exactly what it is. Gives the, gives us what we want. Yes. Um So my other thing about Annie is that she had a lot of great food moments. Yes. In this too. Um, We're jumping right into the food segment. Yeah, we can. Okay. Uh, Scrambled eggs, a la Wilkes. Yes. What what was the? I think it just had peppers in it. Yeah. Right. Um, We see her watching the Love Connection, and she's just housing a bag of Cheetos. Yeah, that's me. (laughs) She also, she also on her nightstand there was a two liter bottle of Coke. Oh, I know. That's not so much me, but yes. Um, Yeah. So one thing I found interesting about the food, how they sort of, again, progressed the plot with food. his meals got scarcer and scarcer throughout yes, the movie. Yes, I noticed that. And um, not as like appetizing. Yeah, not as extravagant at all. Um, but then they have Misery's return dinner when he tries to, you know, poison her. Oh, that's the meatloaf? The meatloaf with Liberace with, with blasting? The meatloaf that has, all right, let me see if I remember, real tomatoes yes. instead of from the can. Yes. And then what was the other part? I got the other part. All right, what's the other part? Spam with the ground beef. That's it. They, she, which, okay, can I just tell you... I just saw the episode of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives where they were at Bagel Street Cafe in Plainsboro where yeah. we used to live. Yeah. And one of the things that they do is a spa- or a pork roll burger and they put pieces of pork roll in the burger meat. Oh, wow. And so that reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's pretty much what that is. Uh, yeah, no, so, you know, and then there's obviously the Dom Perignon at the end of the movie. I mean, that's great. Um, but yeah, there's a, there food isn't abundant, but it's always serves a purpose in this movie yeah which i think is exactly what it's supposed to do yeah exactly and it's great if you're doing an oscar watch party and you want to make food based on all the nominees yes. the 1992 oscars were probably or was it 1991 oscars were probably lit with the uh <laughs> with the meatloaf scrambled eggs yeah. olive wilkes yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. meatloaf um yeah, I mean. Oh wait, wait! Before we move on, that reminds me though. There's a an entire to get into Real Housewives talk. Okay, good. A this good is exact, segue. Exactly I'm a, I'm what a, you want. I'm an expert, so. All right. Um, there's an entire Instagram account on like Real Housewives orders, and that's there's an actual point where they always will wait until the housewives order to cut to a different like thing. So we always know what they're ordering. Okay. Because I just feel like as viewers, food and drink is so interesting to us. They have us. to make them relatable in some way. I guess. Just, 
not so or not relatable like not so rich people i denise richards once ordered i think it was a a salad that she it was just like two things and she got rid of one of the things it was like i but i don't want parmesan and i don't want that it was like so and she ordered a side of mashed potatoes like sometimes you get these orders and you're like what um and so i think that as viewers we always want to know what people are eating and drinking so i like that she annie goes into detail on why her meatloaf is different and yeah. like because that is important to her yeah and it's an, and then it's important to us yeah and we also i think in this movie have in the back of our minds like is she poisoning him yeah and i think that's something that paul probably has in the back of his mind but he can't For not sure. eat yeah he has to heal from his injuries from his car accident yeah he, so yeah and like uh like annie says if i die you die yeah so yeah good stuff um yeah so uh, do you have any other like questions or discussion? Because I think I, c- I might have one. I can go into trivia whenever you're ready. Uh, let's see. The only other one that I oh no, I have two. One is not really a question; it's just a comment. Is there a couple that's more goals than Buster in Virginia? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we didn't even get to them. Yeah. No, they are ridiculous. They're so funny. Um, they're, they're just so like old. <laughs> so yeah, they're just like older. They're like in their got to be in their like late sixties, early seventies. But late sixties, early seventies, in the early in the eighties and nineties, like you're ninety years yeah, old. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they are. How would you describe them? I uh, Virginia just wants to get it on. Virginia sounds <laughs> promiscuous, <laughs> but just for Buster. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Uh, and yeah. they're they joke with each other. Yeah. And it's cute. Like Virginia always is like, ah, I bet Buster's out having an affair. And then yeah. he comes in and she's like, What's her name? Like it's cute. Yeah. Like and it's, that was when he bought like all the misery novels and he was like, I was out getting evidence. Like yes. <laughs> Um, so I do feel like that's something that in the movie, of course we can't go into it, uh, you know, because we are covering enough in this movie, you know, yeah. like but I do feel so bad for Virginia. Because her yeah. her husband died and yeah. was murdered. Like, that's yeah. awful. And that, yeah. you don't see her after that. No. There's nothing else about Buster. You don't leave the house after that. Justice for Buster. Until the epilogue. Yeah. So I do feel bad about that. But there are a couple goals. And then my last question here is, um, do you have a favorite Stephen King adaptation? Do you have any other ones that you really like that we didn't talk about? I really like the latest It uh, not the second. Not chapter two. Not, I didn't see chapter two, but yeah. the first one I thought was actually really well done. Yeah. Bill um, Skarsgård. Yeah. I I really like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Green Mile's great. I never saw the Green Mile, but you know. Yeah. I don't actually like Stephen King's writing, to be honest with you. I r- tried to read Mr. Mercedes. Uh, I, no, listen, I listened, I listened to, to it. it. Yeah. And I had to turn it off. I was like not into it at all. Although is it am I crazy or did Bre- is Brendan Gleeson involved in the adaptation of it? It was he like made be. into a it was so a TV ha- show. Ugh, I think I'll he may have been it. I think he may have been the uh, the the you know detective yeah oh god i'm gonna have to watch that because yeah. brendan gleason yeah we got to go through the but, um, discography <laughs> and filmography but i i find that stephen king as a writer is a little too hokey and he writes cheesy. for he writes for himself yeah he writes for people who loved like pulpy novels in the 70s right and that just isn't really my jam i i wasn't alive during that time so i didn't read any of that stuff i don't love his reading but i find i mean his writing but i find it very easy to fly through okay and i also i find that he goes on ad nauseum about descriptions of little things but again he's appealing to people who 
he's appealing to people like my mom loves Stephen King. Yeah. Like he's appealing to those types of people who remember Lucky Strike cigarettes and, want and stuff to, like you know what I mean. Like remember exactly what they looked like and yeah. be like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Kind of thing. I get. Yeah. I totally understand that. It's just not for me. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I I like his books because I think he's a master of plot. That's fair. Uh, but his although style, I heard his endings are not always the best. Oh, that reminds me, Carrie's really good, and that has a good ending. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which um, I've never seen, but I know the ending. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so Stephen King. There's I other ones feel like Pet Cemetery, which I never saw. There's a lot Christine. that I, there's a million that I haven't seen. Oh, the eleven twenty three, fourteen oh eight three. Also, that one. Yeah. Um, oh, and then the uh, what's this series that you think that Dark Idris, Idris Elba was in, oh, or man. Matthew McConaughey Both. or something? Um, that was. Uh, I'm just. Let's just move on. Okay. Uh, and I feel that a lot of the things that I don't like about his writing on paper is what makes the adaptations really good yeah that when you can turn it into showing not telling um by visually being on the screen yeah it really works when you see the pack of lucky strike cigarettes instead 110%. of him describing the logo and the colors pages and, yeah uh yes exactly all right so what else do you got um, i'm done mrs nesbitt award which one of them is it i don't know i think everybody knows who they are i don't think there is one well I think that, I don't know. I think that Paul has a little bit of like, I mean, I read a little bit more about the book. Okay. In the book, he has a lot of writer's block and he has a lot of like, I don't know what I'm going to do after this, but that's not really portrayed too much in the movie. Okay. But Annie at the same time is like, she's talking to God to find out where she needs to go next. And like, there's a heavy like religious component here in this movie too. There is. Uh, in the background. Uh, I mean, she wears her, her, her cross, cross necklace the whole yeah. movie, but like, I don't know. It's probably Annie. If I if I had to, I mean, Paul has some, but I think it's I think it's Annie because she's still she's again. She knows how much she loves Paul. She knows the novels like the back of her hand. She knows that she's probably going to murder him, uh, yeah. but given the scrapbook. Yeah. But I mean, like, I don't know if she knows what to do after. Like, what's her next thing? And it turns out it was going to be it was going to be suicide. So, yeah. Well, that is interesting because I feel like her. um she maybe feels like she's at kind of the end of her uh, journey just when you look at the book that she has created, that right. scrapbook, where it's like, okay, who does she want to be next? And I guess she kind of came to the end of that. She doesn't want to do anything else. Killed everybody else. She killed everybody else. Like, she wanted the house and the farm, so she killed her dad. She wanted to be a nurse, so she killed the, like, the, nur yeah, the nurse the head student, nurse, yeah. the head nurse or whatever. I don't know about all the babies, yeah that's a whole other thing um but now it's like that's okay. just oh that's creepy that's weird and she does even <laughs> say at the end uh when she's talking to buster and she's just trying to cover her tracks for why she bought all that paper and you know whatever but she's saying to buster like oh i god told me that now i have to finish what paul had started yeah. by being a writer and finishing Misery's story and stuff like that. And I thought that that was kind of interesting of her, at least, I, she might not, probably doesn't mean it, but taking over once again for the person that she's responsible for kind of making disappear. One thing I'm wondering is, why was she not the first suspect? Like, Buster knew who she was. Buster mentioned in the beginning, oh, the Wilkes Farm and Annie's up there. And like, there's all these news stories about her in this small town you would think that they would be like okay well here's a person who was on trial for murdering a bunch of kids she at this trial she if you literally just read that article she was talking about misery and this guy's novels and now this guy disappears uh, that's a really good question the only thing i can think of is 
when you are when you actually know somebody sometimes that goes the other way I where guess. it's like oh well i know that they were accused of that but they didn't really do it and they got off and so like whatever and i feel like, oh annie's so nice and she comes into town all the time and i know that she was accused of that thing so many years ago but she's been great ever since yeah so like i think that when we actually know people we're more willing to put up the blockers and to have the excuse of well I know that people think A, but since I actually know her, I think B. Okay. Do you know what I mean? We don't explicitly get that in the movie, but no, maybe. I'm just trying to think of a reason why she wouldn't be the automatic first. The one. only for the only Where suspect. Like literally on the helicopter ride, they're like, yeah, there's the Wilkes farm and that's the only thing that exists. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder who did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So another thing I want to talk about is how this book is about... The book is really about Stephen King's battles with alcoholism, writer's block, and cocaine. Yes. Um, so I I read his book not too long ago. It's called On Writing, and it's just about his career and everything. And We have like 75 copies of this book. I feel like everyone buys you this book. We do. And I read it finally not too long ago, and it's, it's really, really good. Um, but he talks a lot about his inspirations for certain of his novels. He has too many to really go through. But um, for Misery in particular, um, he was saying how... And now, of course, I can't find it. But he basically said that Annie Wilkes, to him, is cocaine. Like, he was a prisoner of his addictions at the right. time. And he was writing a story about someone, a famous writer breaking free of those addictions. Which I think is a really cool, like, way of doing that. Yeah. And, re- like, way of confronting well, yourself. Symbolism. Yeah. And so, one thing that I also found in this book was that he wrote... uh he writes about his initial ending. So in the book, it ends more or less the same way, uh, except in the epilogue, he's not at a restaurant. He's like at home and he has writer's block and he comes up with an idea for a book and then he just starts crying because it's like him putting to bed everything that had previously happened. That's actually a really nice ending. Um, yeah. So the Oh, wait. <laughs> and then also in the book, he gets... His foot is amputated. Yes. Uh, not so he has cobbled. a pro- he has a prosthetic at the end. Okay. Um. So he talks a lot in his book uh, about here. I'll, I'll just I'll just read the the his description of his original ending for the book because it's it's crazy. <laughs> uh, Paul Sheldon wakes up to find himself Annie Wilkes' prisoner. I thought I knew what was going to happen. Annie would demand that Paul write another novel about his plucky continuing character Misery Chastain, one just for her. After first demurring, Paul would of course agree. A psychotic nurse, I thought, could be very persuasive. Annie would tell him she intended to sacrifice her beloved pig, Misery, to this project. Misery's return would, she'd say, consist of but one copy, a holographic manuscript bound in pigskin. Oh yeah, did you talk about the fact that she had a pig that she named Misery? Uh, I did in the, in okay. the plot summary, yeah. Uh, he said, here we'd fade out, I thought, and return to Annie's remote Colorado retreat six or eight months later for the surprise ending. Paul is gone. His sick room turned into a shrine to Misery Chastain. But Misery the pig is still very much in evidence, grunting serenely away in her sty beside the barn. No. On the walls of the Misery room are book covers, stills from the Misery movies, pictures of Paul Sheldon, perhaps a newspaper headline reading famed romance novelist still missing. In the center of the room, carefully spotlighted is a single book on a small table. A Cherrywood table, of course, in honor of Mr. Kipling. Apparently, he's a big Rudyard Kipling fan. Okay. Uh, it is the Annie Wilkes edition of Misery's Return. The binding is beautiful, and it should be. It is the skin of Paul Sheldon. That is 
so creepy. And Paul himself, his bones might be buried behind the barn, but I thought it likely that the pig would have eaten the tasty parts. <laughs> um, so he, he then goes on to say basically that he says, not bad, and it would have made a pretty good story. Yeah. Not such a good novel, however. No one likes to root for a guy over the course of 300 pages, only to discover that between chapters 16 and 17, the pig ate him. But that wasn't the way things eventually went. Paul Sheldon turned out to be a good deal more resourceful than I initially thought. Uh, and his efforts to save his life gave me a chance to say some things about the redemptive power of writing that I had long felt but never articulated. And then he goes into detail about Annie, saying how she was way more complex than he had imagined her. And she was great fun to write about. Here was a woman pretty much stuck with cock brat when it came to profanity, yes. but who felt absolutely no qualms about chopping off her favorite writer's foot when he tried to get away from her. In the end, I felt that Annie was almost as much to be pitied as to be feared. And none of the story's details and incidents proceeded from plot. They were organic, each arising naturally from the initial situation, each an uncovered part of the fossil. And I'm writing all this with a smile. As sick with drugs and alcohol as I was much of the time, I had such fun with that one. That's really cool. And so did we. We did. We had so much fun with we that. We had so much fun with that. I am happy that it was a happy ending. I think that the end, if it was that original ending, would have been great for shock factor. But I kind of like that I'm left a little buoyant when I finish that movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the point of the movie was to be negative. I think it was supposed to be a thriller where the good guy wins in the end. Yeah, and I like that. Again, it knew what it was. And that's something that I think is rare nowadays. Yeah, I feel like people have feel like they have to trick everybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, one last shock, and it's like that's not always necessary. It's yeah. cool. Like if, if that was the ending, that's cool too. But yeah. um, I like the ending that we got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. I'll go to some trivia. Great. Uh, more Stephen King stuff. He loved Kathy Bates in this movie so much uh, that he wrote two more roles for her. Really? So in the movie Dolores Claiborne, uh, she ended up she ended up playing the character based on Dolores Claiborne from the novel. Okay. And he also, uh, in the miniseries of The Stand, mm-hmm. uh, changed a character from a man to a woman so that Kathy Bates could play that character. Cool. Uh, he also said, you know, in, in addition to what he said in the book, that uh, Annie's his favorite character he's ever written. Really? Yeah. She's so great. I just, I love that there's a sense of humor there. Yeah. I love it. Um, heading back to the, all those, that big list of actors, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Nicholson. This is just a fun fact. Jack Nicholson, when he turned down the role, did I even say him? I might yeah, not I get, think you did. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, he turned down the role, which was interesting because James Caan had previously turned down the role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, James Caan, really? Well, and the main character in both movies is the victim of a psychotic nurse. Wow, it's you're just right. a little fun, fun little thing there. Yeah, Nurse Ratched sliding, sliding doors moment right there. That's really cool. Um, Kathy Bates. Okay, <laughs> I've got three more. All right, two of them are Kathy Bates. First, she was reportedly disappointed that a scene was cut in which she kills a young police officer by rolling him over repeatedly with a lawnmower. Oh, my God. Uh, Very Fargo. It it probably wasn't cut for the reason you think. Well, maybe it is the reason you think. Rob Reiner thought the audience would laugh at it. There you go. Which (laughs) Fargo with the wood chipper. That's exactly. So maybe maybe this probably was filmed, but it didn't make it into the final. cut. So smart of Rob Reiner, because that's literally what the first thing that popped in my head. Yes. Uh, And. During her Oscar speech, she said, I would like to thank Jimmy Kahn and apologize publicly for the ankles. <laughs> That's awesome. She's the best. And I love this one. Uh, after they wrapped filming, Richard Farnsworth, who played Buster, gave Rob Reiner the hat he wore during his introduction. Fun. <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great character as well. Yeah. I'm excited to see. He. Uh, I was talking to you about it yesterday. He was in a movie that David Lynch did uh, his yeah. final role in. And I, I'm excited to see that the one. Straight Story? Yeah. 
Yep. Um, awesome. Where he like rides a John Deere across the U.S. or something. Yeah. It's definitely low key. Yeah, which I'm, I'm which down is not for. David, not very David Lynch, but no, apparently that's why it's I'd be a little off off center for what he normally does. That's why I'd be interested in watching it for sure. Yeah, cool. Um, anything else that you have, Tom? Um, I'm just gonna flip right through. I don't think so. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, like we said, this movie is what it is. Yeah, there's nothing like profound to talk. Like, movie's great. Go watch the movie. Yeah, five it's stars. It's on Showtime. It's on Showtime. Yeah easy enough most of us have showtime i guess if you don't let me know i'll give you my password stop no we won't <laughs> no we won't showtime we promise uh, oh the the one thing that i didn't really we didn't we sort of alluded to is like annie's vernacular is incredible oh yeah you cockadoodle. yeah she calls him mr man a lot yeah oh my god i wanted to talk to you about that yeah she whenever she's mad at him she calls him mr man yeah which shows you kind of maybe her relationship with her husband where she maybe felt like less than yeah maybe um and it's like oh you're the big strong man okay right. mr man right and so she calls him mr man even when he's like not because he doesn't fly off the handle at her at all not a single time um, until so, he hits her over the head with a typewriter i mean yeah that there's that but it's so interesting that she calls him mr man and it's kind of her working herself up and that's one of those stephen king isms too yeah like you could see him writing mr man a million times in the book uh, right. And things like Heavens to Betsy and stuff like that where she and, and cock duty, whatever she was yeah. saying. Yeah. And then there's the one point where she just curses the one guy out, which is great. Was it the guy that she like almost crashed into? No, she doesn't curse him out. She does the same thing where she's like, you cock doodle But then she uses the first part of that for a very not so nice thing that she yells at James at, Conn. At Paul. Okay. At Paul. Yeah. yeah. And that's like the final turn. Yes. Where she actually curses at him. Yes. Right, right, right. Um, at the end. Yeah. And I love I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I also love that the house that um, like they're in, it's almost like this weird uh, labyrinth, but it's not like it's just a house. Yeah, but you still feel like, oh, my God, what's that door going to go to? What's that? Go-? But it's just a house. I way, love that. The way that he wheels around, it's very disorienting. Yeah. And I thought I thought that was really well done. Yeah. Because, of course, anytime you go to somebody's house. Yeah. You're like, uh, what? where's the bathroom what door is it? it's whatever that's another thing that's a testament to like the cinematography and everything like that yep because yep. you know he's turning and he's opening a door and you're like wait was wasn't that the kitchen before and now it's like the room with the penguin and like the the phone where the lines have been taken out like all that all i can say is this house was made very pre-open concept yeah and i can't imagine that it uh would pass inspection in many areas no the property brothers even back then the property brothers would definitely take down some of those yeah. walls although some may be yeah. load bearing they yeah. need to put in a beam or two this is a different show know. but i would definitely list it uh <laughs> if you're loving it or listing <laughs> yeah. it yeah um i would probably list it as well <laughs> um yeah, so I, th- I think that's it. I think we're ending with uh, Love It or List It for Misery. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, hope you enjoyed the episode. What's uh, next week, Tom? Our next week uh, is another one that was uh, before we were born. Yes. And it's one that has come back into pop culture recently. It Very is much 1986's so. Top Gun. Yeah. I have a whole thing about Top I was such a weird child, Tom. I- I'll talk all about how this was my favorite movie for quite some time growing up. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know if I really know this, the details of it. So there aren't really details. I was just obsessed with this movie. Well, we'll talk about that next week too. Awesome. Um, So I already have the next week too. I'm like already, I'm so excited for the next one. We're ready to go. Um, So Top Gun was directed by Tony Scott stars, Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis, Val Kilmer. It was the highest grossing film in the United States in 1986. And it had one of the most popular movie soundtracks ever. Oh yeah. You got your Berlin. You got your Kenny Loggins. How many times platinum? Let's say three. Nine. What? Nine times platinum. 
Oh my god! And the most important fact about this movie is, as I said, I've never seen it. Yeah, Tom's never seen it. I I can't believe you've never seen Top Gun. Yeah. You don't feel the need, the need for speed. No, I love Danger Zone. Danger Zone's such a good song. It's such an '80s classic intro song. Yeah, and I mean, I, the movie obviously has an enduring hold on pop culture because it spawned a sequel. Obviously, which you all know if you're listening to this, Top Gun Maverick. Yep. It is thus far the highest grossing movie of 2022, which the fact that that's not a Marvel movie is a major achievement. It really is. I know that it's like, oh, it's a sequel, but come on. It's a sequel from 1986. How like, many sequels? I don't really count that. How many sequels come out every year? And how many of them beat, you know, Doctor Strange or, you know, whatever Thor that just came out? And listen, here's the thing. I know that we're very conflicted on Tom Cruise. Yeah. The man is a movie star. He's a star. He's a movie star. Yeah, he's a- I, like, listen, it is what it is. Listen, if there's any Scientologists out there, you know. Just close your ears for this one. But, you know, he's not a great guy. Yeah. Not a very good guy. No. We know that. We'll talk. Oh, we could have a whole Scientology segment. Cause okay. I, I, I have seen all that stuff. I love all those. Okay. Yeah, we'll do Scientology next week. Um, <laughs> we'll do an audit. Perfect. Um, Get those Thetans out. Yeah. So the original <laughs> Top Gun is available on Prime Video and on Paramount Plus. So obviously, like every week, we'd love for you to, you know, watch it before next week. Follow along with us. But, you know. Obviously, as always, the the plot summary, I'll have that in the description, you know, when that ends. So if you don't want to get too spoiled. Anyway, Top Guns next week. Continue to follow us on Instagram at Baby's First Watchlist on Twitter at Baby's Watchlist. Rate us five stars everywhere if you want. Two stars. No, uh, no two stars. Only five stars. Oh, yeah. You have to be nice to us. Yeah, I told that. Right. We've said that from the beginning. You have right. to be nice to us. Right. Um, but yeah, I would say I think right now the best thing you could do for us is rate us five stars yeah. because... That'll get us on like some of the search lists and like suggested to other people and all that. Well, or you know what? You can also just like tell a friend who likes movies about it. Yeah, you could do that. But also rating takes it's so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but also shout out to all of our friends and family who who listen. We get so many little texts and comments and and people just like reaching out every week and it makes our hearts so happy that you're listening and um you're hearing for april's little jingles and maybe now for our little baby's uh whimpers and coos um he had a few today he had a couple i don't know if you can spot them and uh so we just want to thank you for that and if you listen to us and you don't know us I, I don't Why? know. Tell us. Tell us <laughs> on the Instagram. Like, comment on our thing and tell us because I don't know if anybody does. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but it's still cool. Yeah. Absolutely. All, All right, right. So uh, I'll see you later. Bye, Babysitters Club. <laughs>